I was the one that was the oldest in the family. Uh, there was never a, a doubt in my mind that there was anybody older, but I always wondered, why did my parents wait for eight years to have me? So curiosity, you know, was there. But when I found out at 34 years old that I wasn't the oldest, uh, that then began the quest to find Dennis. I was adopted at six months to a, a very nice family and uh, was embraced and never thought different. I never expected that I would find out, much less meet, you know, my birth family. So it was 1995. Uh, the internet was, you know, brand new. Uh, I had literally no nowhere to look, so I turned it over to God at that point and just hoped that at some point um, I would, you know, get something. My mother received a gift um, from her husband, my stepfather, uh, the gift of Ancestry.com. What happened was popped up this guy named Dennis Paula uh, with a 50% DNA match parent-child. We saw a couple photos of him and I instantly knew that, you know, wow, you know, he's got the same forehead as me. <laughs> he looks like me. It's, uh, it, that's him. I, I think that, you know, we should reach out to him. I felt like I was in a spin cycle of a washing machine. I mean, I, I've never felt those emotions and uh, I didn't know what to think. So we called and uh, had a great conversation and then I informed him that, you know, I wanted to talk to our mother and I'm telling God I'm gonna be talking to my birth mother tomorrow. And I said, what do you say? And I heard him say something to me as clear as anything I've ever heard. I heard him say that I'm gonna make you the gift that I use to bring healing and forgiveness to this lady who has carried this for almost 70 years. And I lost it. She literally was 15 years old and her husband, my father, just joined the Navy and he was gonna be gone for a year. So she was gonna be completely by herself. It's the single most um, emotional event that we both have gone through. At 15 years old, she's for 70 years wondered if she did the right thing by giving her firstborn son up. And when she gave her firstborn son up, she did not even get to see him, uh, didn't get to hold him. And she immediately started crying when I called her. And, uh, and, and she starts apologizing to me. And uh, her name is Marianne. I said, Marianne, I said, there's nothing to apologize. I said, I need to thank you because you did the right thing. She um, is just so healed from this. It's been unbelievable. And I knew for sure, clearly, that God had meant this to happen. It just further confirmed my faith and my belief in, in that God is very much active in my life. It's pretty amazing to be able to see people that look like me and talk like me. I talk as much as I do. <laughs> and um, never in my wildest dreams had I thought that it would be possible. Isn't that a great story? Bruce and Dennis at our Hendersonville campus, thank you for letting us share your story. Brothers from, an, I'm actually brothers from the same mother. And, uh, and we, uh, man, we celebrate that. And that is, what a beautiful picture of the gospel and that God's love and his grace for us, and that in Christ and through Christ, we are reconciled to God. We are made one with him. We find a family. 
um, that, he has, that he has made for us, he's prepared for us. There's this reconciliation that takes place. And what a picture of waiting. I mean, that's what Advent is about. Advent is this time where we're reminded that, that waiting is a big part of our faith and that we are, we are waiting. And while we are waiting, God is working. That God's working even in the waiting. And, and Christmas is a lot. Of, how many of you like to wait? How many of you are into waiting? None of us. I mean, especially like with, with technology, like we are conditioned for immediate results, but so much of life is Christmas is about waiting. I mean, we're we wait for a parking space and waiting in lines and, and we wait for a package to, to ship and we, waiting, we wait for family to arrive and we wait for family to leave. I mean, Christmas is, it's just, it's time, it's time of waiting. And then it, what it does is it accentuates the other areas in life where we're waiting. Maybe we're waiting for things that, are, that have more gravity, things that are heavier, like we wait for a relationship to be reconciled, or we wait for a loved one to come to faith, or maybe wait for a spouse, or wait for a child, or, or maybe waiting for a diagnosis, or waiting for a healing, whether it's emotional, or whether it's um, physical, or wait for the depression to lift. I mean, there are so many heavy ways in life that we wait and sometimes when we're waiting, it can seem like God is silent. But here's what you need to know is that even when you can't seem to hear God, God hears you. That he hears you. Psalm 145, 18 says, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. What that means is that God hears you. Every prayer, every cry, every tear, every call out, God hears you and that he is near. He is near in the waiting. He's not far off. He is near. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas, that God came near through the person of Christ. And that's what we celebrate in this series that we kick off today called Behold. Now, behold's not a word that we use a whole lot in our vernacular, in our culture, in our day. It's not like you say, well, well, behold, mom, a parking space. Or, or behold, Carl, the Titans just scored a touchdown. Or, or behold, Linda, TJ Maxx is having a sale. I mean, to behold is, is not a word that we use all that often. But, but it really, it got brought in when the conversation, when they were translating the English Standard Version, the ESV, the translators said when they're, they're wanting to hold true to the Greek and to the Hebrew, to the original languages. But they said, you know what? Look and listen just doesn't do justice. Like we need to go back to that word behold, which means to pay close attention. Like what's coming next is, is vital, it's important, it's, it's surprising, it's significant, and, and it will change your life. You, you don't want to miss this. So behold carries this idea of like, look up, look up out of, out of distraction, look up out of discouragement, look up out of the depression, that you would look up and that you would behold, that you would see, that you would see what is, what is real, that you would see what is greater, that you would see what God has for you. So all throughout the scripture, we find this. This word, behold, it shows up 1,152 times in the scriptures, this word, behold. And so whenever we see that word, behold, it should get our attention. I was pondering, I was thinking about this, and I remember when we were back in Israel in October, there was a group of us that went, and we went to Beth Shan, which is this city, it's a, it's, it was actually in the Old Testament, it was a Canaanite city, and the New Testament is part of the Decapolis, 10 cities right outside of the Galilee, so 10 miles from the Sea of Galilee. It's a city now. It was um, maybe if you remember the Old Testament story, it was where they took the bodies of Saul and, and Jonathan. So we actually we went to this. I'd never been to this place before. And as we went there, it was remarkable. The story of how they found this place blows my mind. There was a farmer who was walking along and he was plowing his field and he came upon and he came upon this stone and he looks at this stone. And he's like, huh, that looks like that looks like the bottom of an ancient column. And so he starts digging around it. And what they found out, it wasn't the bottom of an ancient column. It was the top of an ancient column. 
And so they started digging. They brought in, you know, archaeologists and began to do excavating. They brought in all this equipment and they found a city. Like they found this city, this massive city, 370 acres of an ancient city. Some of the most significant findings, archaeological findings in the past, in past hundred years. And so they start digging. They find, they find a 7,000 seat amphitheater. I think I have a picture of, um, of me sitting at the, sitting in this amphitheater. There's me. That's my bald spot. And so, um, look at this. Hide that right there. there it's a Photoshop. And so like, so we got, we got this whole amphitheater, 7,000 seat amphitheater. There's no hiding anymore. Let's go back to the other photo. I like the other picture. Let's do that one. It's like, so they have this, they find this whole city and there's like a Roman, Roman baths and there's latrines and there's this, this whole town and they found all these homes and this marketplace, this agora, this massive finding. And, and so then they brought us and we were walking through and they, they go, they go, this is the column. They show us this, they show us the column. And so I'm just standing there and I'm looking at this column, this, this massive column. And as I'm looking at it, I'm going, I'm going, man, this, this is it. This was the one column. In 700, 746, there was this massive earthquake that just demolished the entire, entire, uh, entire city. And said, this is the only column left standing. And so everything was filled in over centuries, over centuries, over centuries. And people, as that, as that town was conquered, it was completely filled in into all that could be seen is the top of this column. And because some farmer was plowing in his field and was like, huh, that looks like a stone, the bottom of it. No, it's the top of the column. I'm looking at this column, and I didn't realize the entire group left. I mean, I'm just, I'm looking at this thing. I am blown away in this moment. It's like, how many tourists have walked by this column and haven't realized that's what this is? And, and how, how many other people had walked right past that stone and didn't realize what was underneath it? And here's the reason I tell you that story, because every time you see a behold in the scripture, it's God's way of saying there is more going on here. That every time we see one of those behold, it's God saying it's time to get out the backhoe, get out the excavator, get out the shovel, get out the digger and begin to dig and excavate because there's more going on here. But what happens in life is we get so busy, especially this time of year where we where we hardly take time to behold and busy has no eyes for, for beholding. Busy has no eyes for miracles. Busy has no eyes for awe and for wonder. That's why the scripture said, be still and know that I am God. What God is saying is give me a people who will just, who will stand still and behold, take in, look, listen, pay attention because what's happening, what's happening in this season, what we're celebrating, it changed all of history. The cosmos leaning in to the moment that we talk about Christmas, that Christ has come. So the behold we're gonna look at today, if you've got a Bible, you can turn with me to John chapter one. John chapter one, we're gonna look at this, this first. And every time we see a behold, it's time to start digging. It's time to start digging. The one we're gonna look at is John chapter one. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there with me. We're gonna pick up in verse 29. Let me set things up first, okay? So back in the Old Testament, there was a prophet named um, Malachi. Malachi. Um, also known as Malachi, no, the, the Italian prophet, but actually it's Mal, it's not, it's not, he's not an Italian prophet. This is actually um, Malachi. I don't know why, that's what happens when pastor has ADD. You just go different places. You did. But so he, he ends up, he ends up giving this prophecy 
Um, he gives a prophecy that before the Messiah shows up, that there's going to be another prophet, and the prophet is going to be a forerunner. He's going to be a one that goes before and announces the way, who prepares the way for the Messiah. Now, who he's talking about, we know now, is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist comes on the scene, and it's his responsibility to, to get things ready. Now, Malachi gets that, gives this word, and then after the last book in the Old Testament, the last prophet, we have one page that separates the Old Testament and the New Testament. That one page represents 400 years. So there's 400 years of silence, 400 years of waiting, 400 years of waiting for the Messiah, for the one who's promised, for the one to come. Now, then God promises, I'll send, and he tells Mary, he's like, you're, you're pregnant with a child. You're gonna have the Messiah, but, but, um, but you gotta wait nine months. And then God says, I'm gonna send my son, I'm gonna send the Savior, I'm gonna send the Messiah, but, and he arrives, the baby arrives, but then you gotta wait. You gotta wait 30 years, 30 years. And so the, what I want you to see is there's a lot of waiting. So if you're waiting, waiting is part of our story. Well, what do we do when we're waiting? Well, we behold, and this is what John says. In John chapter one, we've got the verse 29. So John's down there preaching by the Jordan and crowds are coming. People are coming from all over to hear him. He's baptizing, he's preaching a message of repentance, getting people ready for the arrival of the Messiah. And then the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John is, John is saying, the crowds are all gathered around and John's going, behold, there he is. John's like, this is the day, this is the moment, this is the time I've been waiting for my entire life, my entire ministry. Jesus is here and John is saying, behold him, look to him, pay attention to him. John's saying, don't look at me anymore, look to him. Don't look at me, look to him. I must decrease so that he might increase. Look to him and John knew that his responsibility was to point to Jesus. See, here's what John teaches, when all eyes are on you, what do you do? You point to Jesus. That's, that's the call. When the attention is on you, it's to point, it's point to Jesus. And John says, look to him. Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Now, what is that talking about, Lamb of God? Well, we got a word, behold, so now it's time to dig. So what we're going to do is we're going to dig. We're going to excavate. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning. And we're going to look at the story of the Lamb through the Scriptures. We go back to Genesis and it tells us that God made Adam and Eve, and it says he walked with them in the cool of the day, that you were made to know God. You were made for relationship with God. You were made by God. You were made for God to, to experience an intimate, life-giving relationship with him. But what happened is sin entered the picture, and sin broke, it broke that fellowship, that communion with God. And Adam and Eve, in that moment, after they sinned, they recognized that they had sinned, and they hid. They hid. And so sin causes shame, and shame leads to hiding, and it's still, like Adam and Eve didn't just happen, it happens. And so because of sin, we hide. That's our, that's our tendency. You don't have to tell a little child after they, after they wrong somebody else to hide. It's just, it's, it's primal. It's, it's in us to hide. And God pursues Adam and Eve because God's not okay with the, with the separation. God's not okay with the distance and the relationship, and God pursues them. But what Adam and Eve did after they, after they sinned was they, 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 tried to, they tried to cover over. They sewed uh, fig leaves for themselves to try to cover over, to try to deal with their shame. And we do all kinds of things in life to try to, to, try to um, cope with shame, to try to deal with shame. But God wasn't okay with the separation. And God pursues them, and he says this. He says, aika, this Hebrew word aika, which means, where are you? Now, he asked this question, where are you? Now, God is God. He knew exactly. He knows that he's, he's omniscient. He knew exactly where they were. God wasn't like, where are my friends? Where did they go? 
God knew exactly where they were. So that word aika doesn't mean where are you physically. It means where are you in here? Where's your heart? Like, where are you? In the same way that Rhea and I can be driving down the road and I can be preoccupied and worried about something or thinking about something or solving a problem. And I can be in the car, but not there. And she can tell. And so she's like, where are you? Like, you're here, but you're not here. What she's saying is, is, is I want to be connected in this moment at the heart level. And that's what God was saying is, I'm not okay with the separation. Where are you? And God pursues them. And what God does is he makes a move toward them in that he provides a sacrifice. If you go back and read the story, you see that he makes a covering for them from the skin of an animal. The very first sacrifice to cover over shame comes from God to help deal. God makes that first move toward them. And so this is the beginning of the Old Testament sacrificial system to deal with sin and with, with shame. Hebrews 9.22 says it this way. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so the sacrificial system teaches us that we're all, it just, we're all, we all, we know this. We're, we're, we're sinful and we're broken and we're in need, we're in need of help. And we've all experienced the feeling of guilt and shame. And so God, in his, in his love, he created a system so that we would know that, that, that sin had be, been dealt with. And so they would sacrifice an animal. They would sacrifice an animal as a way in that moment that they could go back to that moment and say, no, my sin has been, has been dealt with. Have you, ever, have you ever been in a relationship with somebody that's all the time like, are we good? Are we good? Are we good? Or maybe you've been that person. Are we good? Like, you know, you know what it is to wonder where you're at in the relationship. And God doesn't want us to wonder where we're at in the relationship with him. So he created this system so that people could go back to that moment and they could know, no, my sin has been dealt with. And so I can have joy because I can have joy because I don't have to carry that guilt, that shame, those crimes anymore. That, that sin has been atoned for, has been dealt with. They understood this from Leviticus 17, 11. It says, for the life of a creature is in the blood, for I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And atonement is a theological word that means covering. And so in other words, guys is saying, I've got you covered. Like your sin, your shame, your guilt, I've got you covered. And so they could leave that moment and that sacrifice and they could, they could go, aren't you glad that we didn't have to pull up to church today with like sheep, like lamb? But like this was part, this was part of the, the sacrificial system. This is part of the story of the lamb. And then we keep following the story and it leads us to Exodus chapter 12 and the Passover. If you know, if you're familiar with that story, the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, they're enslaved in Egypt. And they've cried out to God, and for 400 years, they've been slaves. And they cry out to God, God, we need to deliver. And God raises up a Moses, and Moses goes to Pharaoh and tells him to let the people go to release him. And Pharaoh, um, he resists. Scripture says that his heart was hardened. And so he says no, because it's, it's about economics. It's like he's got a migrant labor force he's not going to release. And so God begins a series of plagues or judgments on Pharaoh, until um, Pharaoh relents. And the final plague, because Pharaoh would not relent, was that there would be the death of the firstborn um, of all who did not take the blood of a lamb. The sacrifice, he said, each family sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of that lamb, a spotless lamb, a lamb without blemish, and take the blood of that lamb and put it over the doorpost, the doorframe of their, of their homes. And that that, that, would, that would be their, their faith and their trust in God. And for every family that did not do that, they suffered. Death of the firstborn in Egypt, 
The Egyptians did not. And the Israelites, the people of God, they did. And Pharaoh relented and he, he set the people free. He told them to go. They tried to chase him down after that, but he, for the moment, he told them to go. Now, this meal, this Passover meal, God tells Moses, he says, I want you to tell the nation of Israel to, to eat this meal every year, in springtime, to eat this meal every year, and that families, that generations, 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 they get around the table together, and that the host of the table would be able to remind them, we were slaves in Egypt once, but we're not slaves anymore. That God has set us free, and to take that bread and say, with this bread, it represents the affliction of our fathers. And with this wine, it represents the freedom that we've received. And with this lamb, it represents the sacrifice that was made. And so every year, for generation to generation, and you know that this meal is a central part of, the, of, of Judaism, of the Jewish faith, it's an important part in the moment. And remember last week we talked about it was Passover week when Jesus was crucified. It was the time of year where they would come together and Jesus' last meal with the disciples in the upper room. They were sharing this Passover, Passover meal together. And Jesus with his closest friends. And he said this bread does not, does not merely represent the affliction of our forefathers. This, this bread is my body that's been broken for you. It's my affliction. And this cup doesn't merely represent the freedom of our forefathers. It, it, it represents my blood that was shed for you, the ultimate freedom in that you are free of sin and death. And there was no lamb on the table because the lamb was the host. Jesus is the lamb. Jesus is the the ultimate sacrifice, the final Passover lamb who would be crucified at Passover, that he would lay his life down so that we could be set free. So that we could be set free from sin and shame and living into our past. So we'd be set free from, from the Egypt and we could live in the promised land, that we could live in his promises. And that Jesus is the lamb of God. So John, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, behold, the lamb of God. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he lets us know what's coming. He's the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. In 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, it says, Knowing that you were ransomed, that you were bought, that you were purchased from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. John chapter 19 tells us that when he was crucified on the cross, that not a bone was broken because he is that spotless lamb without blemish. Matthew tells us that it was at twilight that he was crucified, that he died because the lamb had to be slain at twilight. And here we are enslaved in Egypt in our sins and that Passover lamb, the perfect, the ultimate sacrificial lamb named Jesus laid down his life for us so that we could be free. How does one man's life atone for all of, the, all of the world? It's because he is worth more than all the world. Son of God gave his life for us. And John, filled with the Holy Spirit, behold the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world. Now Jesus is raised from the spoiler alert. He comes back from the dead. Three days later, he rises from the, he conquers death, which is really good news because it means the sacrifice took. It means that it atoned for our sin. And so Jesus raised from the dead, son of God, so that we could be made right with God so that we don't have to hide anymore 
so that we don't have to live in guilt and in shame that our sin has been atoned for. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And maybe you come a couple times a year and like, you're like, Pastor, this Christmas message sounds like an Easter message. Like, I don't know if you realize what's going on, Pastor, but this is not, Chris, this is not Easter. This is, this is Christmas. And uh, you, can't, you can't have Easter without Christmas. And so what I want to do is I want to take you to tie this all together, the story of the Lamb with Luke chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 2 with me. In Luke chapter 2, we find the story of the shepherds that are in the fields. And shepherds are in the fields right outside of Bethlehem. And as the shepherds are there in the fields, and we read that story, if you've seen the Charlie Brown Christmas special, you know that part. Shepherds are in the field, they're tending their flocks. And what's going on here? Why is that important? Well, in the Mishnah, which is the oral tradition of the Pharisees around the time of Christ, hang with me, check this out. One of the regulations in the Mishnah states this. It says it, it, it expressively forbids the keeping of the flocks throughout the land of Israel except in the wilderness. And the only flocks otherwise kept would be those for temple services. Here's what I'm saying. All the sheep, the normal sheep, get kept out in the wilderness. But the sheep that had been designated for temple services would be kept in the fields. Now, where are these shepherds at? They're in the fields. They're tending the flock in the shields, right out, right in the shields. They weren't tending them in the shields. They were tending them in the fields. And they were tending the fields right outside of Bethlehem, which was the place, tradition says, where the Levitical priests would have taken care, would have tended to the flock that would be used the flock that was without blemish that would be used specifically for the Passover services. Are you tracking? So it's these priests who their sole responsibility is taking care of the sacrificial lambs that will be set aside for Passover. Now, it's these, these are the priests that the angel comes to. Verse 10, it says, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, Got some good news. The Messiah is here, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. Got some bad news. Shepherds, you're out of a job. Go to monster.com, polish up your resume because you, we aren't gonna need those, those lambs anymore because the ultimate, the final sacrifice is here. Behold the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. This is what John was pointing to, that Jesus is here, the one who has taken away our sins. Behold, so Christmas is a celebration, and we behold the Lamb of God. Sometimes, I've, and I'll walk by, we've got this nativity scene set up in our house. Sometimes I'll just walk by, and I'll just stand there, and I'll kind of do a little, I'll move Jesus, I'll hold Jesus in my hand over here, and then I'll take the Lamb, and I'll put the Lamb right up there next to the manger, and i just start thinking about that the Lamb, I know y'all think I'm weird, I am. And then that moment, I just think, yeah, this is the, the Lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice. I'm holding Jesus, the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And so Christmas is a celebration that our sin has been dealt with through Christ. That, that we, don't, we can't sacrifice enough to earn God's love. Listen, what difference does it make? What difference does it make when we behold? 
to look, to listen, to take in, to pay attention. What difference does it make in our life? If you're not yet a follower of Christ, if you don't yet know Jesus, I want you to pray and ask God to give you revelation to help you understand this. Jeremiah says, if you seek me, it's God talking, if you seek me, you will find me when you seek with all your heart. Man, this Christmas season, seek him with all your heart. Behold. Because Christianity, what separates Christianity from every other religion, every other religion is how do we make our way to God? How do we climb the ladder to God? And Christianity is God comes to us out of his love for us, that he pursues us, that he makes the first move. You're like, are we good? Are we good? And God's like, I already made the first move in Christ. None of us are, none of us are good enough on our own. None of us. We all fall short. That's why scripture says this way, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It means we deserve death, but because of Christ, we have life. But it says it's a free gift. How do you, how do you receive a gift? Well, you don't work for it. The moment you start working for it, it becomes a wage. It's not a gift anymore. You receive it. And today, God wants to give you, he wants to offer you eternal life if you'll receive it. So what difference does it make when you receive? What difference does it make when you behold the Lamb of God? I want to give you four things. If you're taking notes, you can write them down. Let me give you four things. The first one, when we behold the Lamb of God, it changes how we see God. When we behold the Lamb of God, it changes how we, how we see God, how we understand God, how we, how we see him for who he is. We have a God who, who makes the first move. Whenever there's a breach in a relationship, whenever there's brokenness in the relationship, whether it's between a spouse whether it's with kids or with a friend in the workplace, there's always somebody who has to make the first move. What I want you to see is that God has made the first move toward you. Aika, so where are you? And his first move toward us is love. Scripture says this way, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, he didn't wait for us to get our stuff together, to work it all out. While we were still sinners, on your worst day, God moves toward you. God is moving toward you. So when we say, behold the Lamb of God, what we see is God made the first move in Christ, and he still continues to move toward us in Christ through his spirit. God is moving toward you. When we behold the Lamb of God, it changes the way we see God. It also changes the way we see ourselves because it lets us know the fact that Jesus needed to die for us, that we are far more sinful and broken and jacked up. Look at the person next to you and say, you're jacked up. You say, well, you're jacked up too, right? We are all, we are all a mess. But listen, it, we are far more broken than we ever imagined, but we are more loved than we were ever, we could ever dream or hope for. That we are loved unconditionally by God. And so it's not just that we're broken, it's that we're loved and that in Christ, check this out, in Christ, it says that we have received the righteousness of Christ. Let me share this verse with you. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, God who made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's what that's saying is that when you put your faith in Jesus, when you put your trust in Christ, you take the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of your life, you receive the righteousness of Christ. You've received his perfection in your account. 
that he has credited to your account. He absolved your sin debt. He reconciled your sin debt. He atoned for your sin debt, a debt that you couldn't pay, that I couldn't pay. And he credited to our account. If we're in Christ, he credited to our account the righteousness of God. This means when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your shame. He doesn't see your guilt. Those things have been atoned for. He sees the righteousness of Christ. He's like, where are you? Where? Oh, there you are. There you are. I see Jesus. I see Jesus when I look at you. Listen, how we see ourselves is a commentary on how we see God. And if you understood God's love for you, his unconditional love for you, when you look in the mirror, you would see a child of God that is dearly loved. If you're in Christ, if the blood of the lamb is over the doorpost of your life, you need to know you have been set free and it's been credited to your account, his righteousness. That's why it's good news. Number three, it changes the way that we see others. It changes the way you see others. When we behold the lamb of God, it changes the way we see other people because every other person is somebody that Jesus died for. That person at the office, somebody Jesus died for. The person at school, somebody Jesus died for. The person that you might have a hard time loving right now, God does not have a hard time loving them. He loves them unconditionally. And so every person that you look at, they've got a sign over their head that says mine when it comes to God. Somebody that he loves, somebody that he's pursuing. And what that does is that levels the ground. There's nobody better than anybody else. And so when it says in the scripture, hey, I got good news for all people, it's because it's for all people, for everyone, not just Jews, but Gentiles, slave, free, black, white, Asian, Latino, Republicans and Democrats, everybody. You say it with me, everybody. Everybody is good news for all people. And if it's good news for all people, it means it's good news for you. But in order for it to be good news, you have to receive it. We change, it changes the way that we see other people when we realize the blood of the lamb has been shed for us. And then it also changes our sense of mission in life when we look at other people because we realize that our job is like John to point people to him. That Jesus is the only, Jesus is the only hope we got for getting out of this place alive. Not for getting out of the building. I don't mean that, but he's like, he's the only hope for getting out of this world alive. He said, if you put your eye in the resurrection and the life, we put our faith and our trust in him, we live forever, but eternal life starts now. We receive life because he's the lamb of God who laid down his life. It changes the way we see other people. And then last, it changes the way we see eternity. Changes the way we see eternity. What's wild is in the gospel of John, two times in the gospel of John, Jesus is called the lamb of God. When you read Revelation, where John gets this picture, he gets this revelation of eternity in heaven, he, 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 the lamb of God is in there 28 times. And I wanna read to you from Revelation chapter five, verse 11. He gets this picture of, of glory. He gets this picture of eternity, this picture of heaven. He says, and then I looked and I, I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with, with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures said, amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. That all of heaven is pointing toward the lamb of God, the lamb that was slain. 
so that our names could be written in the Lamb's book of life, so that we could be at the wedding supper of the Lamb, that we could be with him forever. That's been his desire since the beginning. In the garden, he says, where are you? I wanna be with you. And so God makes the first move in the garden. And then God makes the move through sending his son, Jesus. He makes the move through the cross to pursue you because his desire is that we would be with him forever. The question is, where are you now? Have you received by faith the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of your life? Say, God, I'm not, I'm not trusting in my good works. I'm not trusting in my philosophy. I'm not trusting in my religion. I'm not trusting in my church attendance. I'm not trusting in what I give. God, I'm trusting in Jesus alone. The blood of the lamb is the only hope I have for eternal life. And when you behold him in his glory, it changes the way you see God. It changes the way you see yourself. It changes the way you see other people. It changes the way you see purpose in life. It changes the way we see eternity. So have you received have you received? Have you received the free gift? And if you have, then now our job together is to point to him. Cross point, it's in our name. That we would be great pointers. That we would point people to Jesus and say, he's the only hope. And in this Christmas season, where people are, are open to faith and looking for hope, that we would share the hope that only Jesus can give. We'd say, come and see the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. And so today, I believe there are some where this is your day to say yes to him for the first time. And if it is, and you were handed one of these when you came in, this is a little tear-off tab. You can indicate on here your decision today. We want to help you grow in your faith. We want to have some pastors down front at the end. You can just hand them that card and say, today is my day. The blood of the Lamb over my life. I'd love to pray with you and pray for you. Would you bow your heads and your hearts all across the room? Jesus, we thank you. Thank you that you stepped out of heaven for us. Father, thank you. Thank you that you sent your son for us. And the plan was in place before the foundations of the earth for us. You didn't want us to carry shame. You didn't want us to hide anymore. You want us to walk with you. So today there is a returning to walking with you. For some, for the very first time. For others, it's a, it's a coming back. Who we're made to be. So if today, if you want to receive the gift of eternal life in Christ, if you want to receive that sacrifice for you, so that you can have the joy of knowing I don't have to carry that anymore. You just pray a prayer, something like this. Let it be your heart to God. God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending Jesus for me. You can just whisper that to him. And right now, I receive the gift. I give you my sin, my shame, my guilt, my past, and I receive new life. I don't want to hide anymore. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for making me whole. Amen. If you prayed that, 
Pray God's grace that he give you strength to let somebody know to go public with that. And then I pray for those of us who have been following Jesus for a while. And maybe we've started pointing to self instead of pointing to him. God, I pray that you would redirect our lives with a mission that's greater than us, the purpose that's greater than us, that the people around us would know the hope that only Jesus can give, and that through our love and through our words, that they would see your love on display, and that they would behold you, that they would adore you, that they would come to know you too. We wait for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to sing a song that's a celebration of the season. I encourage you to sit and receive the gift that we have in Jesus. And then when you're ready to adore him, you can stand and sing. Thank you. 